Welcome back to Unknown Warriors with me, Michael Baker. There have been many general histories of the First World War, but most have taken a narrative approach or been told from a largely national point of view. Very few have attempted a coherent analysis, an organic approach that seeks to understand all the different elements together of this worldwide conflict, what drove the major combatants and how they managed the process of fighting a prolonged and unprecedented kind of war that led to the outcomes of 1918. One such history is Attrition, Fighting the First World War, published in 2014. I spoke to its author, Professor William Philpot of the Department of War Studies at King's College London. He told me that attrition was the fruit of 20 years of thinking about the First World War. I asked him first to summarise the broad thrust of his book. It's an explanatory history of the war, explaining why the principle of attrition became the guiding principle, not simply on the battlefield, but uh, of the societies that were engaged in the war, how it played out in various dimensions of warfare. The land fronts certainly were theatres of military attrition. These were sustained by uh, a home front, which was mobilised to support uh, the armies in the field. Maritime activity is the war at sea, very much geared to sustaining this concept of attrition. And behind that, there's diplomacy to engage one coalition against the other. And finally, there's the need to sustain wartime alliances, the bedrock of what becomes essentially an, an existential war, the both sides of war for survival. This is not a, a book of British history per se. It's an international comparative study of the war that tries to look at the principles who were particularly responsible for identifying the parameters of strategy, mobilising the resources required to carry out the war attrition that developed, and designing the, the right military concepts to make armies effective in this new style of warfare. Uh, having said that, you can't understand the armies and what they're doing without relating it to the societies. That, essentially, it's a people's war, something we associate perhaps more with World War II uh, than World War I. The meta-narrative we have of the First World War 100 years later is a, a tragic, wasteful, some would say futile conflict, but it wasn't to the societies that waged the war, it wasn't to the individuals who chose to put on military uniforms or chose to do their part uh, serving in the war industries on the home front. Uh, they very much felt that their cause was just and the war needed to be seen to a decisive end. Uh, it was an ideological conflict between one system, you might call it liberalism, uh, in crude terms, and another uh, authoritarian rule. In this new kind of war, what was important, and it would take all sides some time to learn this the hard way, was not so much to gain and occupy territory, but to wear down your enemy's reserves and resources, what the Germans called Materialschlacht, the material war. Attrition, of course, it, it's a, a recognised military strategy, and it's when you pitch armed forces against each other and 
essentially the objective is to break the fighting capacity of the enemy army. The military theorists was inherent in what they were trying to do. The alternative to this, of course, is uh, dynamic manoeuvre warfare, which is a style of fighting, but it's not a, a strategic method as such. Uh, and the, the truth is, what is engaged in 1914 is a war between mass societies, societies able to mobilise millions of men uh, to sustain their army in the field by trained reserves or uh, later on untrained reserves, large coalitions backed by the resources of industrialised societies, which means, of course, this is going to be a long, hard war. And the principle, essentially, of breaking the enemy's military capacity, their ability to fight, sustain this war, is going to guide that war. Uh, I think we have a problem in that we identify with the attritional nature of the battlefield, the, the, the trenches, which is our, our paradigm of the First World War, not understanding the strategic context in which this sort of war has to take place. Even if the armies had been more mobile, more maneuverable, as they were on the Eastern Front, you're still involved in this ongoing process of degrading the enemy's fighting capacity, not just in terms of the manpower they put in the field, but the material ability to sustain that manpower, hence you carry out a naval blockade of your enemy, and also the, the morale of that society, both its armed forces in the field and the civilians that back the armed forces in the field, and, and you attack what I call the three M's, manpower, material, morale, uh, in a way that is new to societies going towards the 20th century. Possibly there are some analogies with the battle between the North and the South in the American Civil War. Europe hasn't seen a war of this nature because they haven't had mass industrialised society by this point. So, but it's not an, an aberration. In some ways, you should see World War One, although it takes a little while for societies to adapt to this style of warfare, you should see it as the prototype for World War Two, not a, a failed 19th century war, but a, an embryonic 20th century conflict. That said, it's clear that outside Europe, the conflict was often conducted much more like a 19th century colonial war, which in part, argues William Philpott, explains the failure of the Gallipoli campaign of 1915 and the setbacks in the Middle East that year, when 12,000 British and Indian troops surrendered to the Turks at Kut al-Amara. We have two wars that are going on in parallel, perhaps. There's the, the European war against Germany and Austria-Hungary, which breaks out in August 1914, and the second, more uh, imperially focused war in the Middle East against the Ottoman Empire, which in some ways, although Turkey is allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary, is conducted as a separate conflict with different parameters, different objectives, different mindsets. Uh, for the British, who are the main military protagonists in that war, the campaign is largely carried out by troops deployed from India for firstly defensive purposes, defending British imperial possessions, interests in the Middle East, and later for imperial expansion. Uh, essentially, they are conducted by soldiers who have experience in colonial warfare uh, and using the methods of colonial expeditions. The most controversial aspect of attrition in the First World War is, of course, its enormous human casualty bill. So the question arises, at what point did an attritional approach emerge? How much was it a consciously planned blueprint for what today we would call total war? How much simply a rationalisation for the failure of more conventional strategies? This is, of course, the nub of the problem with attrition as a strategy. It leads to huge casualties on both sides. It's made worse in the First World War, or, or is perceived to be worse in the First World War, at least because 
of the fact that the battles are prolonged and they are static. For comparative purposes, of course, you see similar prolonged static battles in World War II, but you also see much more mobile battles in World War II. Battles on the First World War are, as it were, conducted at walking pace, as opposed to by 1940, you have uh, the internal combustion engines opposing uh, a faster tempo of warfare, but you still see mass armies engaged in similar battles with large casualties. They just don't take place in a small battlefield such as Verdun or the Somme, but they will range more broadly. But the parameters of warfare haven't changed. I think if you want to look at how warfare adapts, the real issue is to see what's happening in 1914, what's happening in 1918, how to get from one to the other. Because you do go to war in 1914 with essentially Napoleonically organised armies, Napoleonic concepts of warfare, but with embryonic 20th century technologies, not in the numbers uh, that you will see by the end of the war, but you do have aircraft, machine guns, lorry transport, telecommunications. They exist, but they haven't been applied to the battle space yet. What does dominate the battle space is artillery in 1914. It's an irony, of course, we think of the trenches as the slaughter fields of the First World War. The, the highest rates of casualties of this war in the mobile warfare of uh, August, September 1914, and again in the mobile warfare of the Hundred Days in 1918. Partly it's a question of scale, all the armies are engaged at one time, but also it's a question of the intensity of the fighting that's taking place. But those armies in 1918 are operating differently, uh, they are equipped differently, they're organised differently, the individual soldiers have become sort of technicians of uh, a new combined arms style of warfare as opposed to being essentially a, a, an infantryman armed with a rifle and bayonet as he would be in 1940. He might be a machine gunner, a grenadier, operate trench mortar, uh, carry a rifle grenade. So tactics are involved, but that doesn't get away from the essential operational strategic issues of warfare, which is to engage and defeat the enemy army. We have examples, of course, where this goes bad wrong. Uh, in Britain, of course, it's the first day of the Somme, which we come back to repeatedly as our trope, our model of the First World War. But this is completely atypical of warfare in the First World War. For France, perhaps it's Verdun, again, the, the central attritional battle of that conflict. Out of that comes a much more dynamic model of warfare that the French army is employing, actually on the Somme uh, in 1916, and in the battles that it fights uh, in 1918. Everyone remembers the 10 months battle of Verdun of 1916. Nobody now remembers the four-day second battle of Verdun of 1917, because it was very effective and very quick and decisive victory for the French army. A key argument of attrition, which will perhaps surprise many people, is that these big costly battles like the Somme, Verdun and Passchendaele were absolutely necessary for the conduct of this kind of war through to its logical outcome, namely the utter exhaustion of one side and the comprehensive victory of the other. You needed to fight large battles that would engage and wear down the enemy's fighting strength. Now, of course, there are lots of arguments about should the Somme have been fought? Was it fought in the right way? Uh, what impact did it have? Particularly in terms of the British Army's participation. The French Army's participation is largely forgotten, although by the end it was fighting uh, as much, maybe more, than the British Army on the Somme battlefield and it achieved objectives similar to those of the British with half the casualties, suggesting there is a sort of a, a different pattern of warfare that is emerging 
at this time uh, as well. What I try to do in attrition is step back from the events. I didn't want to give a, a detailed blow-by-blow -blow analysis of the battles. I wanted to step back from the traumas of the war and explain the, the context uh, of the conflict and, and the, the nature, the methodology behind it. And if you hadn't fought the Battle of the Somme in 1916 in the way that you did, at some point, at some time, the two armies would have had to engage in a battle of this nature in order, as it were, to decide uh, the conflict. In the course of 1915, it became evident to all sides that this would be a protracted war which could take years. This had far-reaching implications for the societies that supported the armies in the field, for this was now a war not just between military forces, but between nations. It's clear in 1915 that armies cannot deliver a quick, decisive outcome. The simple reason for that is even despite the horrendous casualties of 1914, probably all armies on the Western Front reached nearly a million, these armies have trained reserves, men who have been trained pre-war, who can simply replace those casualties on the battlefield. But what this warfare demonstrates is the overwhelming control of the battlefield by artillery and other missile weapons. So to break the stalemate, it's easily identified that you need more firepower, which means more guns and more shells. It's a simple lesson. Everyone identifies that by the end of 1914. But there's going to be a time lag before you can mobilise your home fronts to create what you might call the machinery required to deliver effectively on the battlefield. You have to mobilise workers, you have to organise the infrastructure, you have to arrange the transport, you have to produce the guns, you have to produce the shells to fire from the guns, you have to train the gunners to do this. The fact that by the middle of 1916, essentially two years into the war, societies have adapted, I think, is quite impressive. The shells crises, the shortages of 1915, are no longer there. By 1916 and by 1918, you've got massive material basis of warfare. That's the sort of the new principle of warfare. Machines uh, become central to the weapon system, particularly the artillery. Some remarkable facts testify to the voracious demands of the vast new war machine that each belligerent nation now had to support. By 1916, for example, a single British division actively engaged in an offensive needed four trainloads a day to keep it supplied. All of this had to be unloaded at fixed railheads and transferred onwards to the front line, placing huge demands on transport and labour. The French army started the war with 164 cars and lorries. By the end, it had 98,000 motor vehicles at its disposal. In Britain, shell production increased 12-fold in 1915. By 1917, it had increased 12-fold again, achieving an output of 76 million shells of all calibres. Yes, it becomes material-intensive warfare. Uh, we tend to think of guns and shells, which of course is what you fight with, but you need food, you need timber, you need telecommunications equipment, you need the ability to evacuate casualties, you need a, a complicated logistical support method. And this in itself paralysed armies in 1914-15 until they worked out new management methods, new logistics methods to actually make the, the machine run more smoothly and effectively. So as well as in some ways your tactics when you face the enemy having to adapt to the battlefield, your whole method of supporting 
those tactics uh, and supplying those tactics has got to change. So the battlefield reaches right back to the factory floor. I mean, Lloyd George, uh, when he became Minister of Munitions, described this as an engineer's war, and he was right in that respect. It's not just designing the right sorts of weapons and equipment, but it's for choosing them on mass for mass armies. And to do that, you need to, as it were, change the relationship between citizens and the state. The government steps in and manages what essentially, before this time, is a, a private enterprise economy to gear productive capacity to sign up trade unionists who are the works leaders to a, to a national war effort. You need people to produce what you need to fight the war in huge quantities, unprecedented quantities, means adapting industry away from peacetime structures, peacetime production, to produce what you need in wartime. A bicycle manufacturer will become a, a shell producer, something like that. So, interestingly, the, the biggest employer uh, in Britain by 1917 was the, uh, the government factories, new munitions factories created by the government to produce uh, for the, the, the new mass army that Britain had fielded. And all states found the the productive capacity, the ex expectations uh, of shell requirements were grossly underestimated uh, when they went to war. So every state had to expand its industrial capacity uh, to some extent. Nevertheless, in 1914, Germany probably had a head start on its opponents with an economy better geared up for war. I think Germany was better prepared. Its military system was, as it were, more embedded in its society. Uh, so its army was better trained, relatively better equipped, although it had its problems as well. Certainly relative to the Russians, a mass army certainly, but a poorly equipped army. There tends to be a claim that the Germans were successful in 1940 because they had more heavy guns than the French, for example. It's not entirely true. The Germans used their heavy guns in a different way to the French. So it's not just who's got more stuff than the other side. It's a question of techniques and circumstances as well, I think. Uh, but what the Allies have to their advantage, in 1914, throughout the war, they control the seas. They have the Royal Navy, but also they have at their disposal Britain's huge merchant shipping, as well as uh, that of France and soon Italy. And therefore they can have, as it were, a global supply chain, while Germany has to fall back on her own internal resources, more or less, as the Allied blockade increasingly cuts off Germany's access to the world. It also means the Allies can draw on America, although America formally enters the war in April 1917, America essentially has been geared financially and productively to the Allied war effort from uh, the middle of 1915. Attrition makes a strong case for 1916 being the critical year of the war. It was when the real land war started, with mass armies on all fronts slogging it out in huge protracted attritional battles. At the same time, after the false starts of 1915, it was the year when the other fronts, diplomatic, maritime, home and coalition building, also kicked in. 1916 saw all sides fully realise that this was an existential conflict for national survival. I think it's the year when the nature of the war becomes apparent, partly because it's the year when the armies actually engage completely in warfare. There are certainly offensives in 1915, but they're relatively short, relatively localised and relatively effective. In the west, it's Verdun and Somme, and in, uh, in the eastern front, it's the, the brutal offensive, which actually is on a larger scale than either of those battles. 
The Brusilov Offensive of June to September 1916, so-called after the Russian commander General Alexei Brusilov, was a Russian advance along a 300-mile front that recaptured most of their territory lost earlier in the war. But casualties were staggeringly high. 1.4 million Russian troops, 750,000 Austro-Hungarian. Which puts British losses on the Somme into sober perspective. You're fighting new, lengthy, prolonged battles for the first time. Uh, it's a lesson in some ways that armies learn after 1916. We don't want to fight these battles again. Germany withdraws to the Hindenburg Line because Germany's commanders realise that their army cannot take this sort of punishment and cannot sustain a long battle of that nature. And in fact, with the exception of Third Ypres, which is a bit of an anomaly, the battles of 1917 aren't of that nature. They tend to be short, quick, decisive affairs. Third Ypres is notorious as Passchendaele, of course, it's only the final phase of that operation. Uh, but in some ways, I think that the, the problem we have there is that British Army and its command have yet to adapt. They're trying, as it were, to get things right, but they got wrong in 1916, whereas other armies have moved on and are ready for the, the warfare of 1918. You see that in the operations mounted by the German army, their Caporetto uh, on the Italian front, operations mounted by the French army in the second half of 1917. And the British are catching up. Cambrai, perhaps an example of a, a new start of warfare, comes right at the end of that year. Uh, therefore, I think Third Ypres is the anomaly in 19. 17 is not typical of warfare of that year. If 1916 was the year when the belligerents began to mobilise all the resources of the state, 1917 would be critical in terms of keeping going, for finding the stamina in both their populations and their armies to overcome the war weariness that was creeping in. 1917 is a year of strain for both sides. Its obvious manifestation is, is the collapse of Russia into revolution and ultimately civil war. And sides respond differently to this. Partly the nations on the Allied side, as it were, cement their alliance by the end of the year. Whereas in some ways Germany and Austria-Hungary are increasingly pulling apart and trying to go their different ways in the war. Uh, in terms of the people themselves, there's a, a process of remobilization that takes place. Statesmen go to war in 1914, essentially pursuing national agendas. By the end of 1917, new agendas have been put in place for pursuing the war to an outcome. Some of them brought by the Americans, particularly by Woodrow Wilson and his ideas of a, of a democratic peace. Some of them brought by uh, the left, uh, international socialism, who start to argue that when war comes to an end, uh, you should have a peace without annexations and indemnities. And indeed, the statesmen who are directing the war in the second half are not those essentially who started the war in 1914. So you've redirected your energies to a new agenda by 1917, which allows you to remobilise your populations. But at the same time, you've also reached a stage where both sides appreciate that you've got to fight on for survival. It's a realisation that whoever loses this war, the outcome will be revolution, collapse of civil society. And that happens, of course, in the defeated central powers in the end of 1918. And therefore, in some ways, you, you're fighting on more intensively, possibly for less ambitious objectives than you started the war with. But also, you're fighting on because you realise that you've invested too much time, blood, money, rhetoric in a victory 
to now abandon that. Uh, so it's an all or nothing war by 1918, but the, the all they are fighting for is rather different from what they had judged the reason for going to war in 1914. In 1918, with the failure of the German spring offensives, which by July had created almost another 500,000 German casualties, the attritional strain on Germany was beginning to tell, as much on the home front as in its armies in the field. Attrition militarily is about breaking the enemy army's fighting capacity. Partly it's the manpower, partly it's the, the willingness of the troops to fight on. And certainly if you look at German casualty rates, they mount steadily through the war. As the war goes on, the German army reduces the number of units, it shrinks the size of its units, it still has a very large army. Uh, it gets a manpower boost, of course, when Russia drops out and it can bring its Eastern Front army over to fight in the West, which in some ways intensifies the conflict uh, in its final year, because at the same time the Americans are potentially going to bring a similar number of reinforcements over to the Allies. But essentially, uh, the manpower equation very much is going against Germany until 1917, although they do regress it in 1918 at the beginning. Of course, their offences are very costly. So it's only a temporary solution. Uh, it might be argued if they remained on the defensive, they would have had a better chance of forcing the Allies to admit they couldn't beat the German army and reach compromised peace. But by this point, of course, the other impact of attrition has been on the home front. Privations of population have caused political divisions right down the middle of Germany. And uh, Austria and Hungary have fallen out, although technically they're under the same crown. They want different things from the war. Uh, the people themselves are hungry. No better place to talk about what's going wrong in the war than in red queues. There are red riots and there are strikes. There are attempts to remobilize in Germany. But essentially you've got a division between the nationalistic patriots who have their moment of triumph, as it were, in March 1918 with the Peace of brest uh, with Russia. And you've got the, the democratic socialists who've made the peace resolution in the Reichstag in summer 1917, which calls for a socialist peace, a peace, as I mentioned, without annexations and indemnities. And German society is divided between the two. So even if the army is victorious, they're still going to have the problem that a large section of German liberal society, you might call it, does not agree with the, the agenda of the military leadership of Germany. This all plays out when the army admits that they have lost the war uh, in September 1918, and they try to pass responsibility for defeat to these liberal uh, politicians in Germany by essentially bringing them into government and telling them to go and negotiate the armistice. And this lays the route for the collapse of the imperial regime and uh, the, the problems of civil war with the Weimar Republic that follows. But of course, the German army didn't like to admit defeat and therefore they tried to put the blame somewhere else. By the 1930s, against a backdrop of high unemployment and rising international tensions, the idea was beginning to grow that the First World War had been a futile, wasteful conflict. At the 50th anniversary of the war in the 1960s, the view was common that the people who had fought this first global conflict were victims to be pitied. Attrition has no truck with this approach. I think that's a, a misrepresentation of the war. I mean, certainly by the 1930s, on reflection, and they see the world war created, there's a view, particularly among veterans, of, well, was it worth it? Why did we do this? But it's really a Second World War that presents sort of a contrast between the First World War. If we had to fight a Second World War, then clearly there was something wrong with or badly done 
throughout the First World War. So that is falling into the hindsight trap. We don't know how things are going to develop uh, in 1918. Uh, but you just have to read what the ordinary people write uh, in the First World War to say that this is their war. They believe in what they are fighting for. They're very much engaged. The model of victimhood has been one imposed by shifting latter values, particularly values of sort of the 60s and the 70s, back onto a generation who had very different values. And I tried to get back into the mindset of the people, either on the battlefield or on the home front, or with responsibility, political and military for conducting this war, to understand why they did what they did, but also to appreciate that uh, this was a popular war in every sense of the word. It couldn't have been fought if the people had not been willing participants. Of course, they had a difficult time. There was a certainly disenchantment with the war as it went on, but there was not the, the disillusion that tends to come after the war to be, be reflected back on war experience, which was, for many people, a very positive thing, despite the, the hardships and the, the traumas and the sacrifices that the war entailed. I've been talking to Professor William Philpot about his book, Attrition, Fighting the First World War. If you want to know more about William's work or about other recent general histories of the First World War, please follow the links on my website, www.unknownwarriorspod.co.uk. In the next and final episode of Unknown Warriors, I shall be exploring how memory and remembrance of the First World War has played a key role in shaping our changing interpretations of it. I hope you'll rejoin me. Aspire à l'instant précieux